Okay, hello everybody, today is Friday, another Anything Goes Friday, welcome to the show, and just a couple of quick announcements before we begin. The first is that there will not be an episode of that sleep podcast series that I did last weekend. I've decided to put that one on hiatus because I was talking about it with someone and she suggested that I use it in a different way, put it into a new channel, or release it in some other fashion. It's too different for Black Box Online Radio, and I did ask for um, feedback about that, and it is very different. If you haven't heard it yet, last week I did an episode all on a podcast that was purely designed to help people fall asleep, talking about surrounding yourself with positive vibes and kindness and so on. But there will be a future series about that. I'm not sure when or exactly how to go about it. Maybe making a new YouTube channel for something on the weekends. And I do have that other one, Astro Psych 400, where I was talking about astrology. Maybe it would even fit better with something like that. But I do appreciate everybody who listened to it. And also, there will be a regularly scheduled debunking episode that is going to come out. Because on the weekends, I've been doing a debunking series about the Zodiac Killer, where I talk about some suspects that I think are absolutely not the Zodiac. So there will be something out this weekend. If you haven't liked and subscribed to the channel yet, you can do that now. Then you can follow along with all of these discussions. Speaking of the Zodiac Killer, I have just received my copy of America's Jack the Ripper, and I also have another book from the same publisher, Coors Guard Publishing, and it is called Rescued and Restored, The Memoirs of a Death Row Inmate by Raul Cortez, and there's um, an essay in it that is also by Soren Korsgaard, who um, provided me with this to discuss here on the channel, also to read for myself, and I got a little bit uh, fired up thinking about some things, because that's really what Black Box All Night Radio is. I'm, I share my journey with you. I go through things. Whatever material I'm exploring, I put it out on YouTube. And that was really the case, because for years, I did this as a daily segment. It was like a 20-minute podcast, and I would just talk about whatever subject I was following, whether it was true crime or political, sometimes even historical, talking about the presidents and Karl Marx. All kinds of episodes are available on Black Box Online Radio. And that'll lead us to two sort of icebreaker questions. The first is a comment that was left on that sleep podcast from P.F. Clegg that says, How do you deal with people saying unkind or just outright nasty and hurtful things in your comments section of your videos? So um, how do I respond to that? It is now October. And I think it's very important to highlight that because, as I said, I did this daily segment. Sometimes the episodes be 14 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes. And in the summer of 2019, I used to talk a lot more about things like politics. I used to talk more about philosophical issues or even I did a book discussion on Milton Friedman. Someone had written a book about him and I did a couple episodes on that. Any subject was fair game. It was definitely somewhat of a random topic channel. Then I got to the summer of 2019, and I began concentrating more and more on true crime. First, it started by talking a lot about the Zodiac Killer, as well as the disappearance of Madeline McCann, perhaps the most famous missing persons case in the world. But by the end of the summer, I was using this type of 
metric or mental exercise or just something that I did every day. At least once a day, I would watch or listen to a true crime program, whether it was a documentary or listening to an hour-long podcast, at least one true crime program every day. And some people really found that they liked what I was saying about true crime, or they liked how I connected some dots, because when you listen to things every single day, seven days a week, talking about serial killers or murders or people who are involved in conspiracies, you sort of can see these patterns that are forming, and you recognize that mentally they aren't coming from places that are that different. There are patterns and trends and similarities among these criminals. And I put a, a lot of my original raw findings on Black Box Online Radio, and I received a lot of positive feedback. Then came October 1st, and something began to uh, change. It began to get cold outside, and I don't know what um, that... I, I don't know exactly what this is, but October, November, I received an enormous wave of nasty comments. People telling me that I sucked. They said the channel was no good. I didn't know what I was talking about. I wasn't good at talking about true crime. And I was thinking about quitting, like making true crime episodes. I was thinking about, like, to cease and desist that stuff, and I was going to try and rebrand the channel. It is something that is closer to that sleep podcast, doing more about the revolution of consciousness, talking about... um stuff like that, consciousness and pseudo-spirituality, but I decided not to. Why? Because I wanted to know more about the Zodiac Killer. I wanted to actually see if I could try and get some answers, and I was very curious about certain theories in the Zodiac Killer mystery, so I kept exploring that material, as well as a host of other true crime cases. But then, in 2020, October and November came around and started to get cold outside, and I also received another wave of um, nasty and unfriendly comments, and then I was like, whatever, it's just getting cold outside. That That is uh, apparently what people do once it starts to get cold outside. They get nasty in the comments section, so I'm ready for it this year. That, I just think, there must be something um, literally in the air. I mean, cold weather makes people cold-hearted, I guess. Now, here is something that is a little bit more relevant to today's episode, and it's another icebreaker question. But as you can see from the title, we're going to be doing some things with the legal system. And I also talk very frequently about how I listen to the Tate LaBianca radio program hosted by Brian Davis and Tana Laufenberg, and I listen to it while I'm driving. And I heard an older episode where the host Brian Davis posed a question, which I will throw out to you guys. Icebreaker question totally, just so you can give your responses in the comments section down below. Do you believe that people tell the truth when they are under oath? More often than not. I mean, of course, sometimes people are going to lie, right? But what uh, Brian Davis proposed was he thought 70% of the time when people are under oath, they tell the truth. Now, what evidence would he have to support that? Well, it's mostly about reasoning rather than evidence that he, people are going to take the oath seriously. That could be one. Or they are afraid of the consequences. They don't want to get charged with perjury. They don't want to be exposed as a liar. There could actually be very severe reactions for not telling the truth under oath. Like, what if somebody found out they were lying? How would that affect them? And they are very much aware of that. 
Do you believe that people tell the truth under oath more often than not? And um, you can just respond to that one in the comments section. And right now, I would like to look at the book Rescued and Restored by Raul Cortez. This is one that is going to require at least another episode, but the beginning of this book... But the book begins with a foreword written by Soren Korsgaard of Korsgaard Publishing, and it's mostly an essay that he has created, and I would like to discuss this now, because it's all about the death penalty. I used to be someone who was very much pro-death penalty, and there were a couple reasons for it. Firstly, I think that the show Bones on Fox, did you ever watch that one with, um, Emily Deschanel and David Boreanaz, and Emily Deschanel's character was named Temperance Brennan, and she said that she was pro-death penalty because she thought that some people were beyond rehabilitation, and also that it was such an extreme punishment that was fitting for certain extreme cases, like certain types of torturers deserve to be put to death because of their heinous actions. And also, I used to watch the show Lock Up, Every um, weekend it was on MSNBC. I don't really get too close to that channel anymore. But I loved their weekend episodes because they would do these marathons of lockup. And there was this one guy who had to have five different prison guards escorting him everywhere. And one of them was holding the camera because just to document his actions and what he would do to the guards. I think his name was Henry Hodges or Harry Hodges, something like that. But the point is, he has to be escorted by this team everywhere, and they have to vi videotape and record everything he's doing because he's extremely dangerous, and he's projecting his dangerous energy onto them. No matter whom he's around, he's trying to destroy them. And if you just leave somebody in solitary confinement, then that is bordering on cruel and unusual punishment, therefore ending somebody's life has, well, what I viewed at the time was something that was an alternative to that, an alternative to the destructive behavior. But there's um, a way to put this in a nutshell. Someone is so dangerous that they are beyond rehabilitation, and the only way to keep them incarcerated would be doing something inhumane. Therefore, the solution is to end their life, even though that is something that is not very pleasant to think about. That's the way I used to think in the past. As I learned about more true crime cases over the years on Black Box All Night Radio, I mean it specifically on this channel, that's what really encouraged me to move away from being pro-death penalty and becoming more anti-death penalty. And there's some big points that are mentioned here in the Soren Korsgaard's article. First, I'll read this one here. The death penalty is a humanitarian disaster. If you are to read a book written by a condemned man, we should have a bare minimum briefly discuss the implications of capital punishment. Setting other matters aside for the time being, the most important question which needs to be addressed vis-a-vis -vis capital punishment is this. Is it infallible? Let us take a historical example. Before I get to that one, I want to say one thing about which encouraged me to move away from the death penalty. I was listening to an episode of the show Progressive Voice, which is available on YouTube, and the host uh, said that 4% of people who are executed are wrongfully executed, like they are innocent people. 4% of the people on death row who actually make it to execution are innocent. 
And that same statistic was repeated on last week tonight by with uh, John Oliver. And somebody called me out in the comments section because they were like, hey, you're talking about statistics, but you weren't citing your source. And then I told them that I heard it on a progressive voice, and then it was later repeated on last week tonight. But even if, even if hypothetically I got the numbers wrong or they got the numbers wrong, it is still possible that someone could be executed if they were innocent. The possibility exists if you have a system in place like that. And another thing that altered my thinking is I did an episode on the presidential candidate Lincoln Chafee, believe it or not, and um, he used to be the governor of Rhode Island, and he told this story of how in the 1800s, one person was wrongfully executed in the state of Rhode Island, and then they decided that one is more than enough. We are putting an end to the death penalty. Because of that very reason, someone could be wrongfully executed. And those things have really um, altered my thinking. But I would like to look at some points here in Soren Korsgaard's essay. First, I think that there's one impressive thing about uh, this essay, and that is that he is able to weave together so many real, true stories, because sometimes people lose their lives, they are dead and gone, and all they have left behind is the story. I'm going to read something from page 10 on his book. For example, one of the most grotesque instances of judicial murder in the state of Texas involves Larry Swearingen, who was murdered in the state in 2019. Shortly before his execution, his appeals lawyer, James Ridding, said, they're going to execute someone that legitimate forensic science has proven innocent. In the year 2000, Larry was sentenced to death for the murder of Melissa Trotter, who had been strangled with one leg of pantyhose. Joy Carter, the Harris County Medical Examiner, testified at the trial that the victim had been dead for 25 days or so prior to the discovery of her body. The medical examiner later recanted her testimony and in a 2007 affidavit stated that the victim had died more than two weeks before she had been found. Several other experts, including forensic pathologists, forensic entomologists, and a forensic anthropologist agreed with the two-week time frame, which was determined by a variety of methods, and including examining insects that were found on the body. This means that Larry Swearingen had been in prison at the time of the murder. He later said, I was in no position to have committed this crime, literally in no position, as I was in the county jail. As a nail in the coffin, Dr. Victor Whedon, a forensic pathologist at George Washington University and former president of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, released a detailed analysis that concluded that there was considerable evidence to suggest that Miss Trotter was not killed on the day of her disappearance, but was held and killed later and her body was dumped in Sam Houston National Forest sometime after the arrest and incarceration of Mr. Swearingen. And there is a challenge question that is posed here. How could he then be convicted, sentenced to death, and executed despite several appeals spread out over nearly two decades, you might ask? I can attempt to answer that, not um, based on the content of this essay, but on how these things are presented as someone who follows a lot of true crime programs and stories. The first is... Let's look at some of these. Forensic pathologists, forensic entomologists, and a forensic anthropologist. I'm going to 
make a very bold assumption that not every person on that jury and not every person who was watching the media coverage or learning about this case was a scientist. So, therefore, the scientist is going to present their findings and then the attorneys are going to interpret the findings of the scientists, and they're going to try and present it in a way in which the general public and the viewers can understand. So you're dealing with a lot of persuasion tactics. I frequently talk about Scott Adams, the writer and uh, host of the show Real Coffee on this show. He wrote a book called Win Bigly in a World. Living in a world where facts don't matter, or persuasion in a world where facts don't matter, I think is the exact title of the book, because that's it. It's about persuasion tactics. And I think a lot of people would not be able to follow along with the science. But we all have to admit this. I'm not a scientist. Not everyone is a scientist and can actually examine scientific data for themselves. So it can be manipulated Data can be misconstrued, misrepresented, and people can genuinely misrepresent things. Either side of the legal aisle could do this to further their agenda. I'll read uh, something else here from the book. During the trial, Texas Crime Lab technician Sandy Muzalowski testified that another leg of pantyhose found in Swerigan's residence was a unique physical match to the one wrapped around the victim's neck, to the exclusion of all other pantyhose. This would later be shown to be a deadly lie. Larry would later say that the pantyhose, despite being a mismatch, had been planted in the house by Officer Leo Mock. The prosecution called it the smoking gun of Larry's guilt. However, the technician's own notes showed that she found no match between them. After making this assessment, she began working to make one piece fit another. In short, it seems that it was falsified. Now, the prosecution was in this instance determined to get a conviction regardless of Larry's innocence, so they withheld the evidence perhaps to bolster their conviction rate, or perhaps they didn't like Larry and wanted to get rid of him. I do have um, some polite disagreement that I would insert based on that. The legal system in the United States of America is not about fairness. I mean, the only thing that is fair is that you have the right to have an attorney to represents you, and the attorney needs to try to win, but that also includes the prosecutor. The prosecutor needs to try to win, and the defense attorney needs to try to win. It doesn't matter if someone is actually committed the crime or not. It's not about determining real guilt or real innocence. It's about guilty versus not guilty. Innocence is not included in that statement. They're trying to win the case. Somebody uh, wrote something into the comment section once on Black Box Online Radio about lawyers saying they shouldn't be allowed to lie just to try and win their case. And as I understand it, I don't think they are allowed to lie and get caught. I mean, the, what they try to do is they try to lie and not get caught. And I'm reminded of a story once that I heard on one of those true crime programs. I forget if it was the FBI files or 48 hours or maybe even Dateline. I, I was even looking for it once to uh, pull it up again, but it was a story of how a defense attorney won a case because the prosecution was trying to say that a man murdered a, a person and buried their body in the forest, but they had an audio recording of this man walking to that place in the forest, and he said something, and I'm going to paraphrase this, 
but I think you can still get the idea. Talking about how some type of uh, money was buried, and the defense attorney is like, he did not kill a person, he did not murder anyone, he didn't bury anyone's body, he buried a safe that contained money. There it is. I mean, it's it's not even a sentence. It's down to one word that showed that he wasn't, he didn't do it. He buried some type of valuables in that safe in the ground. But that was all a total lie. No, he definitely murdered her and he confessed to it after he was found not guilty. But the whole point is, the defense attorney made the jury think that he was not guilty, but he made they made them he made them think they were innocent. He made them think that his client was innocent, but that wasn't the case. It's just it's about winning, even if it means sentencing somebody to death or sentencing somebody or getting somebody convicted for a crime that they didn't commit. But um, in the uh, statement that uh, Larry Swerigan said before he was executed. It goes like this. Today, the state of Texas murdered an innocent man. Many people participated in my demise, beginning with the Montgomery County police who falsely arrested me without a warrant, particularly Officer Leo Mack, who planted the pantyhose in my home that was used to convict me. Harris County Medical Examiner Joy Carter then lied about the length of time Melissa Trotter's corpse lay in the woods. Judge Fred Edwards and the Montgomery County District Attorney's Office refused to give me a fair shake in the legal proceedings, while the Houston Chronicle and other local media shared the same lack of fair play when it came to the court of public opinion. The Texas Criminal Court of Appeals rejected my filings, even looking at them. Finally, Governor Greg Abbott pulled the trigger. I've spent the last 19 years in solitary confinement. In this situation, you wouldn't even put a stray dog into it. And this forced me to grow up. I found I had far more potential than I ever dreamed possible. I learned Texas law to the point where I proved my innocence beyond any shadow of doubt. Although, unfortunately for me, actual innocence is not legal cause for stopping an execution. And it should be. Oh, don't misunderstand me. It should be, especially during the appeals process. I get that attorneys want to win. All Forget everything I said. If you can prove that you are innocent beyond a shadow of, of a doubt, as he just said, then no, you should not be executed. And But the whole point is that uh, this is something that has encouraged me not to uh, support the death penalty anymore. Innocent people can be executed. And if you want to uh, uh, discuss that in the comment section, I would invite you to um, to do so. However, I follow several courtroom dramas, and this year I started watching The Good Wife and The Good Fight. The Good Fight is um, a kind of an ongoing show. I guess that's the best way to, to describe it. It's a spinoff of the show The Good Wife with uh, Juliana Margulies and a lot of other uh, famous actors have appeared on it. Uh, Michael J. Fox, Matthew Perry even had a recurring character for a while. But they even talk about how, and then that's a fictional show, but they show how scientists can be manipulated. Oh, well, if you don't say this in court that supports our agenda, well, then there are going to be consequences for you. One of the characters was this British doctor, and he's like, I will not be a part of this. I have absolutely no reason to diminish the integrity of the scientific method which I've devoted my life to. Like, yeah, but um, if you do that, then we will do this. Oh, all right, fine then. So um, they put pressure on people to say certain things, even if it's not scientific, because 
the general public doesn't understand science. And the, the sad thing is the general public doesn't even really want to understand science. Rolo Tomasi, who is the author of The Rational Mail, put out the fourth volume of his series, which is talking about some of these things. It covers more different subjects, but he has one line in there when he says that people who are not scientists accept science when it supports their agenda, when it tells them what they want to hear. Oh, no, but if science tells you something that you don't want to hear, then they they dispute her. They say, oh, well, that's not real science. Or they dispute uh, the person that it came from. They're saying, oh, well, this guy isn't uh, credible. He, Yeah, he's a scientist, but he's um, uh, doing um, inappropriate methods because it didn't give them the collusion that they desired from the beginning. And I would like to go to a different part of uh, Soren Korsgaard's essay here that says, the most important conclusion is that innocent people are killed by the state. The state is a diffuse term in this case covers bloodthirsty and evil jurors, judges, and doctors, and other prison officials who carry out the atrocious deeds. As far as um, bloodthirsty behavior, Soren Korsgaard also says something about how even though one of the people that he writes about in this essay, he covers uh, multiple cases, I just wanted to talk about Larry Swearingen because I thought it was a very clear example, but the family of one of these men who was executed and turned out to be innocent was absolutely for the execution. They wanted revenge. They thought this person had murdered their daughter, and they wanted just that, revenge in a bloodthirsty way. And then Soren even says that some of the jurors can be referred to as bloodthirsty. And I often go back to that one episode of Dr. Drew that I heard one time just while channel surfing where someone said that this represents a dark and almost violent side of humanity that was always there, but not very widely talked about until the media came about, until we had video recordings and the internet and sharing these things online. And Will Smith said something very clearly about how conditions and, and the way people think it's not changing. It's just being filmed. And we also have much easier ways to share even books like this one, and I'm sharing recordings like this online, people find out that humans are actually very bloodthirsty. And this is going to sound like a really weird pivot, but I used to watch the Artie Lang show. It was on the Audience Network on DirecTV. I just got the uh, YouTube clips, of course. And Artie Lang used to be Howard Stern's right-hand man, but he had some trouble, still does. And one of the guys who was on his show was named Mike Bachetti. He's a comedian. He would tell terrible jokes. Then he would just say, thank you. Okay, let's move on. You guys are great. And somebody asked him a question once. Why were you always arguing with this other guy on the show named Dan? Like, why, are you, why were you two always getting into fights? And what he said was, and I promise you this is relevant, he said, well, we were being honest for the show. It's like brutal honesty. Everything we say is real, but mostly it was because the audience wanted to hear it. The audience liked it when we were fighting. People are psychotic freaks. And that that's something that just really stayed with me. And I remember back um, when I was actually teaching a class as a teenager, I taught this little U.S. history class at some summer camp once. And somebody asked me a question. They said, 
Have you ever heard the stories about how people used to sit and put out picnic blankets and watch the Civil War battles? Not like reenactments, but like in 1862, 63, 64. People would just put out like a blanket and watch the Union fighting the Confederates, even though their fellow citizens are killing each other. And they're just watching it for entertainment. I was like, yes, I've heard that. And then someone asked me, why do people do things like that? And my response was that, have you ever seen a fist fight? And they're like, yeah. And people are like going like, yeah, yeah, kick his ass. Like, yeah, of course. Well, it's just that. Um, back in school, somebody once said that people have this desire for blood and gore and violence. And it's bad. Oh, it's bad. But if I can take anything away from this particular essay here, I think it is that, and I wonder if Soren Korsgaard would agree with me, that there is this type of um, bloodthirstiness among people. They want the death penalty because they view it as an act of revenge. And um, now people shouldn't be allowed to lie in court unless they get caught. And they're indifferent, indifferent. The lawyers... The legal system is indifferent to someone getting sentenced to death, and and it turns out they were innocent. They're just going to view it as they were just doing their jobs. Oh, that's bad. I absolutely despise that about the legal system. The reason why that is in place, though, and the whole the, the, those last couple sentences were just meant to say, I don't think the lawyers are bloodthirsty. I think they view it in their own mind as, oh, they're just doing their jobs, even though they are doing something immoral. But the reason why that is in place is, if the lawyers are not trying to win, and they're just trying to go for the definition of innocence, well, then one side is just going to try and convince the other side that, oh yeah, this guy's actually innocent, yeah. They're just going to plate the emotions like, hey, prosecutors, it turns out my client is innocent for this reason. Can we just call the trial off? What about that guy who uh, buried the safe in the woods? Oh yeah, it wasn't the safe full of valuables. It actually he actually did kill somebody. If you just try and deceive the prosecutor, then people are going to cheat. If you just try and deceive the defense attorneys, then people are going to cheat. If they are both trying to win, that actually creates somewhat of a fair trial. And I know people don't want to hear that. I don't even want to hear it. I'm like, that sucks. That is just absolute crap that people are going to try and put you to jail. You might even be sentenced to death for something you didn't do just in the name of winning. It's a messed up world. I wish we had a better alternative. And I would like to go to a different thing that is on page 16 here in um, the essay by Soren Korsgaard. And it says, Evil prosecutors, like in Larry's case, may also hide or even destroy exculpatory evidence compounding matters. The bias of science is best exemplified by considering that those who are working for the prosecution argue in favor of the prosecution's case, while scientists working for the defense argue their case. Then there is also called junk science, which is a term that covers pseudoscience presented as being robust and mature, or simply scientific disciplines that are falsely regarded as being accurate and reliable. Before we talk about junk science, first, evil prosecutors destroying evidence... Oh, absolutely, that's going to happen. And I, I was talking about the Tate LaBianca radio program. In that same episode that was asking the challenge question, they're saying that not only Vincent Bugliosi, the main prosecutor for the Manson trial, lied completely, but also Stephen Kay, who took over the case, um, did 
exactly the same thing, destroyed something very important that could even be criminal, and it's, they said they're going to reveal that in a future episode. I can't wait to find out about that. Stephen K. from his mother. But I definitely recognize the unethical nature of that. And to go off on a side note about Vincent Bugliosi, the Tela Bianca radio program exists because for two reasons. The first is to find out the motive for the Tate LaBianca murders, what was really going on. And the second is to show that the prosecutor, Vincent Bugliosi, who went on to write the book Helter Skelter, lied. He lied. He abused his power. He cheated. He didn't deserve to win. He didn't give people a fair trial. For these exact same reasons, talking about destroying exculpatory evidence, compounding matters, I mean... I understand that they want to win, but they're playing this game of, I'm going to cheat, I'm just not going to get caught, or even if I do get caught, no one will believe you. As far as the junk science goes, I mean, I just told you about how there is a scientist who has to argue something that they don't believe because they're putting pressure on them in some type of uncomfortable way. It turns into cherry-picking the data. It turns into misrepresenting the data, confusing the jury. I mean, that is something else that exists in the legal system. And we saw this very clearly with the Casey Anthony trial because um, the uh, defense attorney, what was his name, uh, Jose Baez, they did a special about him on HLM when they just said, there are two ways that you can win a jury trial. You can convince or you can confuse. And the Casey Anthony defense trial was all about, the defense that the Casey Anthony team put on was all about confusing. If you cannot convince, you confuse. So if you just confuse the jury, then you can move the outcome to your desired manner. And I think you can see where all this is leading to with the death penalty. That means people can be wrongfully executed. And William Hirons, who was convicted for a murder allegedly attributed to um, the name The Lipstick Killer. William Hirons spent um, 65 years in prison, maybe more than 65 years actually passed away in prison, and he confessed to the crime after more or less being tortured. And also, he said very clearly, one reason why he held on to that confession at the time was his two choices were life in prison or the death penalty. And if he got life in prison, he would have had the opportunity to clear his name. If he got the death penalty, well, there would be no possible way to clear his name. And if he had been wrongfully executed, I'm not saying that he did or didn't do anything. He was convicted of the crime, and it's actually possible that he murdered somebody else, and then they just tried to pin a different murder onto him because he was a likely suspect, and... Steve Hodell, author of the Black Dahlia Avenger and most evil series, says that they tortured him by putting ether on his testicles and so on until he would confess to it. People do some nasty stuff, but also they do nasty stuff because they, they can get away with it because they're not being examined. They do nasty things without getting caught, or if the people who could catch them are turning a blind eye to it, then they can get away with it, and this shows the lack of virtue, the lack of high regard for the morality and the codes of ethics that they need to be following. But some things in here about Soren Korsgaard's um, commentary is that he really wants to point out that somebody like O.J. Simpson, 
had the dream team of lawyers. O.J. Simpson was rich, and he was able to buy his way out of the conviction, more or less. There are people to this day that insist that O.J. Simpson was innocent. There's a whole O.J. truther movement. And F. Lee Bailey, one of the attorneys for O.J. Simpson, still maintained Simpson's innocence up into his later years, saying that read his 17,000 words that he's written about the case, and you'll see that there were multiple attackers. And the general public, a, a fraction of the general public, latched onto that O.J. Truther movement because they have these high-powered lawyers who can say convincing things. I personally believe that O.J. Simpson was guilty of those crimes. If you want to dispute that with me, I will gladly respond to you in the comment section, maybe even do a future episode. But the point is... The average citizen cannot afford the dream team of lawyers with people like F. Lee Bailey, or Johnny Cochran, or Bob Shapiro, or Bob Kardashian, even. They can't afford even one lawyer most of the time. If you can't afford a lawyer, one will be provided to you, a public defender and so on. So that just kind of, I mean, at that point, I don't really dispute too much that the wealthy are less likely to be executed rather than the poor. And it's a sick, sad, messed up, twisted world. But I would also um, want to share some things with you guys. If you'd like to follow Soren Korsgaard, you can go to korsgaardpublishing.com. And he also has a website called crimeandpower.com, where he is the editor and chief. Korsgaard Publishing has also put out the book America's Jack the Ripper, which I will be talking about in the future. And I'll, I'm going to do um, an episode, though, on Raul Cortez, who is... Um, the main focus of this book, I just wanted to respond to Soren Korsgaard's essay, and there are many, many other examples of true crime cases where someone has been wrongfully executed that Soren Korsgaard has mentioned in this book. He also has, let's see, we got one, two, three, four, four and a half pages of sources where he is showing where he's getting the info from, just in case anyone thinks he's just making it up out of thin air. There are citations in this book, which is excellent. So, to leave you guys with that, what is your response to the death penalty? Do you agree with it? Do you disagree with it? Now, respond in an open way. You can respond to any of the challenge questions at the beginning. O.J. Simpson, do you think he's innocent or guilty? You want to talk about Vincent Bugliosi and Helter Skelter? I'm listening. Share anything you want in the comments section down below. Thank you once again to Soren Korsgaard for providing me with a copy of this book, Rescued and Restored, The Memoirs of a Death Row Inmate, by Raul Cortez and the forward is by Soren Korsgaard himself. All right, guys, I will be over on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.